The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. My name is Kathy White. The scripture reading today is from the second chapter of Mark, verses 23 through 28, and from the third chapter of Mark, verses 1 through 6. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing that which is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And from the third chapter of Mark. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, it's good every now and then to have uh, those who are still at home uh, because of specific and unique vulnerabilities uh, to participate in our service, and that was Kathy White, who's one of our deaconesses. Uh, just a fresh reminder that we are joined by uh, many people virtually, even more uh, than we are joined by in person week after week after week. I got a text message after the 8.30 service this morning uh, from, from a member of our church in one of those vulnerable categories uh, saying they just gotten vaccinated, they're about to get their second round, and they can't wait pe- to be back in the community. And I know there are hundreds of people out there who are feeling the same way. We get notes from all, them all the time. And so if you're here and able to be here, do be praying uh, for those who are experiencing uh, maybe a disproportionate amount of isolation uh, because of the pandemic that we're in right now. So So we are uh, in a series on Mark's gospel, and we're calling it Jesus, and today we're talking about Jesus as the burden lifter, and what I'd like to do is to start with a scene from 
a movie that made a significant impression on me. It's actually a commentary on cultural Christianity that was produced by the front man of a band called R.E.M. named Michael Stipe. And it's a movie called Saved, and Mandy Moore plays uh, the role of Hilary Fay, who is uh, known as the most devout student at her Christian high school. She is the principal's uh, favorite, and she is also the lead singer of a band named the Christian Jewels, if that gives you any sense of Hillary Fay. There's a scene where Hillary Fay confronts one of her high school classmates named Mary. Mary has gotten pregnant, and there's only one way as a teenager to get pregnant if you're not the Virgin Mary. And so Hillary Fay was scolding Mary for this. And the scene goes like this. Hillary Faye says, Mary, turn away from Satan. Jesus, he loves you. And Mary responds, you don't know the first thing about love. Hillary Faye then picks up her Bible and throws it at Mary. And it hits Mary and then falls to the ground. And then she says to Mary, I am filled with Christ's love. You are just jealous of my success in the Lord. And then Mary quietly responds, it's not a weapon, you idiot. We have a very similar scene happening right now where Jesus, in a manner of speaking, says to the scribes and the Pharisees, the Bible, the law of God is not a weapon, you idiots. Sometimes Jesus gets angry. Whether we are religious or not, it has been a human habit ever since the Garden of Eden, to separate the world between two groups of people in order to distinguish ourselves and our own groups, to separate the world between the good people and the bad people, and of course, we're among the good people, the righteous and the unrighteous, and of course, we're the ones who are among the righteous, those who are on the right side of history and the wrong side of history, and of course, we're the ones on the right side of history, those on the right side of the aisle and the wrong side of the aisle, and of course, we're on the right side. Christianity separates the world in entirely different terms. The proud and the humble. Those who think they need Jesus and those who don't. And that's what this text is ultimately about. You've got hungry disciples who need food on the Sabbath. And so they do a little bit of work. They pick a little bit of grain in order to feed themselves because they are hungry. There's a human need. And then you've got a disabled man with a withered hand who is in need of healing. And Jesus decides to heal him again on the Sabbath. But then you've got the leaders of the temple and tradition that says we have rules about such things. And we find you in violation of our rules. And then what happens is a confrontation between Jesus and tradition, between Jesus and traditional moralists about the use and the purpose of God's law. And the presenting issue is, of course, the Sabbath, the fourth commandment uh, in the Ten Commandments. And so, so today we're going to look at the letter of the law, we'll look at the spirit of the law, and then finally we will look at the Lord of the law. But first, the letter of the law. Uh, In this sense, the Pharisees are right. There is a command about the Sabbath. 
It's the fourth command. It's recorded for us in the book of Exodus and also in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's repeated throughout the Bible, Old Testament, and New, the centrality of it in the life of believers. And it says, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. On it you shall not do any work. It says a lot more than that, but that's the gist of it. And just like the other nine among the Ten Commandments, there is continuity with the Sabbath command. From the Old Testament to the New Testament to today and on into eternity. Because the moral law of God, which is summarized succinctly in the Ten Commandments, is a blueprint for human flourishing. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's a blueprint for how to thrive as somebody who's been created in the image of God. Because the moral law is actually an expression, a verbal expression of what God is like and what his character is like, which I'll get to in a minute. And so if you're created in his image, the more your life is aligned and oriented around this moral framework, the more you will flourish, the more you will become and be who you are meant to be. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. He said, God made us, invented us like a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol. Kids, that means gasoline. And it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. Happiness and peace does not exist apart from trusting and obeying our maker. Now the Pharisees' issue here, at least on the surface, there are deeper issues, but the surface issue is this. They perceive lawlessness in the disciples for picking grain and in Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And their line of thinking goes like this. This is their courtroom argument. The Sabbath is a day for rest, worship with the people of God, the sacraments, and no work. And their argument would continue, and and perhaps legitimately so, the Sabbath is just as essential as the nine other uh, commandments among the ten. It's just as essential as not uh, committing idolatry, as not committing adultery, as not committing murder, as not committing theft. It's just as essential as not bearing false witness against somebody else. So there is some legitimacy to the Pharisees saying, here's the law, what about that? But then Jesus pushes back on them. And he pushes back, not because they have a high esteem for the law, but but because they have a low esteem for the whole purpose of the law, which is to lead us into love toward God and toward neighbor. It's not because they have a high esteem for the law, but because they have a low esteem for mercy. They have a low esteem for the sinners and the sufferers who have been given the law and who have also been given grace, which the Sabbath is ultimately a picture of. In verse 27, Jesus says, the Sabbath was not made for man. Or I'm sorry, uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant to be your servant. You are not meant to be its slave. And it's a servant you need. 
This isn't a get out of church for free card. This is a non-optional servant that you need for flourishing. Is organizing your entire week around a single day and protecting that single day more than you protect any other thing that you have to do in your life as that which both gives you rest from the week behind you and that gives you strength for the week ahead of you. But it's there to be your servant, not so that you can be its slave. The law is a good thing. And then the Bible, here's a couple of things. The more press, the more words that are given to a subject... It's as if there would be extra exclamation points put at the end of it. It, It's strong emphasis. I think about how Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, doubles down on the centrality of grace in the Christian life by giving more press to the church at Corinth than any other church in the New Testament. Corinth, that jacked up, litigious suing one another, committing adultery against one another, mocking the Lord's table, group of people. More press, two long letters to the church at Corinth, as if to say many things. Number one, stop all that. But number two, this is how much you matter to Christ. The greater your sin, the more he's going to double down on grace to pull you out of your sin. Those things that you like about yourself the least, the things that you like about the person sitting next to you in, in the pews the least are the things that Jesus is going after the most, to gush with his grace, to gush with his love, to gush with his tenderness, to lead you and to lead that person or those people out of that into flourishing. Sabbath is the same way. You get the Ten Commandments, most of them are one-liners. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false testimony. And then you get idolatry. You shall not commit idolatry. And then there's a few more words. And then you get Sabbath. Honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy, don't do any work on it. Long, long guest, most press. Among all of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath gets the most press. Length is infinite, emphasis. The law of God conveys the nature and character of God. He says, don't commit adultery as one who bears my image because I am faithful. And you will flourish to the degree that you are faithful. He says, don't murder because I am a God who is for life from the moment of conception to the moment of death. I am for life. So must you be as well. Do not bear false witness because I am the God of truth. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy because I worked for six six days and I rested even though I wasn't the least bit tired because I don't get tired. 121st Psalm, the Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps. He doesn't get weary. So why would he take a break? Why would he take a rest on the seventh day after creating everything? To take time for benediction, for blessing. It says that God looked back on what he had made and he said, oh, it's very good. It's very good. There's a sense in which we as human beings are meant to look back on the things that we've done and say it's very good. And even if we haven't been able to accomplish things we'd wanted to, 
Even the work itself is very good. Because the work itself is a a participation in the creative and restorative efforts that God is trying to bring into the world through us. Any work that you do, to the degree that it has creative and restorative capacity, your work is just as much God's work. It is just as much ministry as mine is. And so we look back and we celebrate that we participated in what God is doing. And to the degree that we've been able to accomplish something, like God, we can look back and we can say, very good. You know, just yesterday we moved our oldest daughter to Atlanta for her first full-time job. And my job was to put together the bed frame, and I really stink at that stuff. And I achieved it. I did it right the first time. And I looked at my wife and I said, isn't it the most wonderfully satisfying thing just to do tasky things so that you can look at something in real time and say, I did it, look at that. There's something about that. When you mow the grass, when you weed the garden, when you cook a meal and it's good, you say it's good and and just having worked on it is, is its own satisfaction and its own reward. Resistance to Sabbath disables the joy that we're meant to have in our work. It disables us in our hearts in the same way that this man with a withered hand is disabled physically. Resistance to the Sabbath reflects two things going on in the heart. Number one, unbelief that God will provide seven days provision for six days labor. It's a lot like the tithe. We resist letting go of money because we do not believe that God will give us 100% provision of what we need on 90% or less of what we earn. And so the Sabbath is to time as the tithe is to money. It's a call to either trust or not. To believe God or to believe yourself. The other thing is we attach our identity to work. It becomes a means by which to prove ourselves because we have forgotten that Jesus has already proved us. He's already proven us before the face of God. He's already made us beautiful. He's already taken our judgment day and moved it from the future to the past. Where Jesus declared it is finished in the same way that God declared it is finished over creation Jesus declared at the cross, it is finished over us. It's an accounting term. To tell us that, it means you don't owe God anything anymore. You don't live toward the reward. You live from the reward that's been earned for you by another. You know, there's a famous college coach. I won't mention him because I don't want to hurt the feelings or offend the fans. But he wins the national championship every one or two years. Every one or two years. I've watched every national championship. I've never seen him smile. And and what we know about him as we look into his story is he never takes time to enjoy and savor the victory. He never looks at what he's done and says, very good. The next day after winning the championship, he starts working 
toward the next one a year from now. If you're a fan of The Crown, if you watch The Crown on Netflix, you may remember this scene with Margaret Thatcher where the royal family invites her out for a day to play, to go hunting in the woods. And all she has to wear for hunting in the woods is high heels and a business suit. And she shows up in high heels and a business suit and they all look at her like, okay. And then they go and they hunt and then there's a conversation later on and and she talks about why it's so hard for her to do things like go hunting. She says, well, my father raised me. I'm my father's daughter. And and the question was asked of her, what did you do for play? And she said, our work was our play. Our work was our play. You're missing out, Margaret Thatcher. You're a great woman, but how much greater could it have been for you to trust in seven days' provision for six days of toil? The Sabbath is a picture of the gospel. In creation, it's God's last full day of the week. And yet it also becomes Adam and Eve's very first full day of the week. Do you see that? God worked toward his rest so that we can rest into our work. It's it's woven into the fabric of creation. It is finished. Now go Work. And, and the irony is your work can start to feel like play when you know that you no longer have to create an identity out of it. Chariots of fire, it, it's, it's a sin among preachers not to mention chariots of fire in a sermon that has anything to do with the Sabbath. So you've got two guys, two Olympic athletes doing this exact same job. Harold Abrams is a Jew His Sabbath day is Saturday. Uh, Eric Liddell is a Seventh-day Adventist. His Sabbath day is Saturday. And their event, one of their events, for which Liddell is the favorite to win the gold, is on a Saturday. And he doesn't run. Because on the Sabbath day, you shall not do any work. Okay, I I know there are all kinds of debates. Are are you a continental Calvinist on this? Are you a a rigid Sabbatarian? What are you? Okay, to work that out in your own heart, in your own conscience, you know, with with a pastor or with, a, with an elder in the church or somebody else. I'm not here to get into the nitpicky stuff. I'm actually here to take you out of the nitpicky stuff. But for them, that's where his conscience was. And so he doesn't run. And yet you see him in the stands watching a race that he was supposed to win, rejoicing in Abram's victory. But before he ran that race, you see Abram's at the start line. And, and they let you into his internal monologue. I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Very different perspective. Same job. Liddell says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Right? One of them, when he's running, he feels peace inside. The other, when he's still, he feels turmoil and busyness inside. I feel his pleasure Parents, how do you feel when your children fall asleep in your lap? I feel warmth. Even now when my 22-year-old, my 22-year-old daughter would dare to fall asleep in my lap, I would still feel the warmth that I did when she was two. Imagine how God must feel when you crawl into his lap by crawling into the sanctuary. 
or by crawling into the scriptures on a Thursday morning or evening. God rejoices when we rest so that we can rejoice. That's the letter of the law. It's not as harsh as you think. Spirit of the law. Disciples are plucking grain on the Sabbath. The Pharisees ask Jesus a gotcha question, which they're known to do. Why are you doing, why are your disciples doing what isn't lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus says to them, have you never read what David did? Now, asking a Pharisee if they've never read something that's in the Bible is like asking an astronomer if they've never used a telescope. It's like asking Jason Isbell if he's, he's ever picked up a guitar. It's an insult. But Jesus is referring back to 1 Samuel 21, where David and his men ate, with the permission of the priest, ate holy bread, bread of the presence that was normally not allowed. But it was given to them because they were hungry. Mercy was primary to the finer points of the law. The Sabbath was made for man. The purpose is to unburden you. This is why the law of God exists, to unburden you, not to burden you. But the Pharisees, they say, let's put fences around the law. We, we can't be satisfied with what God has given us. Let's put 39 more laws around the Sabbath, including you can't spit on the Sabbath because the saliva might hit the ground, might go into the ground, accidentally germinate a seed, and then it would be work. That was actually one of the rules. And you can't heal somebody on the Sabbath. Somebody's dying in front of you, wait till Monday. There's such deep irony here because Jesus' alleged crime of healing is the whole point of the Sabbath. It's why the day exists for healing, restoration, replenishment, the giving of life, the renewing of life. There's a similar occasion in the 13th chapter of Luke where a disabled woman shows up in the temple And Jesus decides to heal her on the Sabbath and and the temple leaders are indignant and Jesus says this, you hypocrites, don't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey and lead it to drink water? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day of all days? It's as if he's saying, you humanize animals on the Sabbath, but you behave like animals toward humans. What's wrong with you people? As you do this, he might go on, you show yourselves to be more disabled in your inner life than this man is in his physical life. If you have not love, O Corinthians, you can have the whole Bible memorized just like Satan does. And just like the demons who believe every word of it's true and yet shudder because they're not submitted to it. They have their own crazy, burdensome, spun interpretations of it. And then they deliver those interpretations to the Pharisees and to the traditional moralists. If you have not love, you have nothing. The whole point of the law is to lead you into love toward God, toward your neighbor. 
to lead you out of pressure, not into it. So Jesus is furious. He says, you know, the law is supposed to be a a scalpel that's there to surgically restore my people, but you people are turning it into a dagger. It's not a weapon, you idiots. It's not a weapon. Is it lawful, he says on the Sabbath, to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Rhetorical questions. He's saying this, inaction toward a person in need right in front of you on the Sabbath is not neutral. It's evil. It's the worst violation of the law of God. See Good Samaritan parable. Priest and Levite, very likely on the Sabbath because they're headed toward their duties. And they see a man who's dying on the side of the road and they just walk on by. They just walk on by. We need dear Abby to help us with this. Abigail Van Buren, yes, she said this. The church, the Sabbath, is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. I love Tim Keller's take on this. Why does Jesus become so angry? Because the Sabbath is about restoring the diminished, replenishing the drained, and repairing the broken. To heal the man's shriveled hand is to do exactly what the Sabbath is about. Yet because the leaders are so concerned that Sabbath regulations be observed, they don't want Jesus to heal this man. An incredible example of missing the forest for the trees Their hearts are as shriveled as the man's hand. They're tribal, judgmental, self-obsessed. Instead of caring about the man or about the agenda of the healing king, because what do they do right after this? They get into bed with partisan politics. We're losing power. We're losing our agenda. It's becoming more and more difficult to deny our neighbors, take up our comforts, and follow our dreams. So they, they enter in and collude with the Herodians who are the most vile, corrupt, nasty, violent politicians of their day. And yet to get rid of what Jesus is trying to do for their neighbor because it feels like a threat to them, they will stoop even that low it's gross. There's so much more of the Darwinian approach to life than than the Jesus approach. Survival of the fittest. The strong eat the weak. It's all about power, you guys. Let's do the Nietzschean thing. Let's, Let's call up the Herodians. They show their true colors. While saying it's immoral to heal a man, they align themselves with immoral politicians so they'll continue to get their way. By the way, I didn't just punch right or punch left, you guys. I'm punching in both directions. Both directions, because from over here and over here, neighbors are left out all the time. Vulnerable neighbors are dismissed all the time over here and over here. Can we still be friends? Lord of the law, the son of man. And the Son of Man alone is Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the King of this freaking day. 
And so he says to the man, come here. Where else do we hear Jesus say, come, come to me. All you are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. As Tolkien said, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer and so the rightful king shall be known in that way. If my relationship with the law of God makes me feel more anxious and burdened than it does restful, then I need to adjust the volume. I need to turn the volume all the way down to zero on the voice of the Pharisees. And I need to turn the volume up to 11 on what Jesus is saying. There's some of you who will get that reference and there are others who won't. I'm fine with that. Here's here's another irony. Jesus keeps the law himself in a prior sermon. Remember, he goes into the temple with his disciples as he does every Sabbath with his disciples. And the irony here is that, that technically he doesn't do any work in the act of healing because he doesn't touch the man. He just says, be healed. And he's healed. That's how powerful this thing is, you guys. That's how powerful this thing is. Just look. Five minutes in this and five hours with Fox News or CNN, you are so, so depriving yourself of power. That's all I'll say on that. Jesus invites us into his rest. He is our Sabbath. He says, come. And he says, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, a full 17 chapters before he says, go or do for me. Matthew 11, Matthew 28, you can read about it. The Sabbath is to restore and to humanize. It's not a get out of church for free card, but it's a reframing of why the sanctuary is important in the first place. It's because it's where you come to heal. Because the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I find myself, as I did even in the early service, I, I, get, I get so stirred up about those Pharisees, not realizing that when I get so stirred up about those Pharisees, I'm slowly becoming one myself. I separate the world between the Pharisees and the grace people, and, and, and as I do that, I become a grace legalist become a grace Pharisee, an unloving Pharisee toward unloving Pharisees. And and yet you're the one who receives a a tired out, worn down prodigal who's spent everything on prostitutes and wild living. You receive him with joy, but you also Pursue the resentful, pharisaical son who doesn't want to have anything to do with your agenda of grace. And you tell him, son, all I have is yours also. Won't you come in to the dance? Lord, wherever we're coming from, whether we are traditional moralists perpetrating the doctrines of Satan to teach that the law is there to burden people instead of unburden them. Or whether we don't care a bit about your law because we've decided, like the Herodians, to be laws unto ourselves. Even us, and especially us, you came with the words, come, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Because there's nobody who needs more rest than smug, self-righteous Pharisees. How tiring that is. 
And people who act like they're the center of the world, how tiring that is. Narcissism and selfishness are so exhausting. Show us Jesus, give us rest. Thank you for the invitation where you said, come. Amen.